0: check. Yeah, who we are. Hey, good to see you all. My name is Ben, like you just heard, um, and I get to preach this morning. Uh, I'm one of the lay leaders here, I guess. I don't really work here, so I can say whatever I want, right, Simon? (laughs) Um, We're going through the book of Acts, and we're looking at the movements of the Holy Spirit in this series called Where the Wind Blows. We Titled it that based on the words of Jesus in John chapter 3 when he says that people born of the Spirit are like the wind. You can see or you, you can feel it, but you don't know where it came from or where it is going. And similarly, it is with everybody who has been born of the Spirit. And he continues over the course of the Gospel of John and other places to talk about the idea of, of living with and, and by the Spirit. And we see Jesus himself be moved by the Spirit. And um, we're just asking the question, what is, it, what is it like to be born of the Spirit? What is that about, to live life according to the Spirit? And uh, in the Acts we see a bunch of Jesus' early friends and followers living and learning how, how to be in tune with the Spirit. And uh, I love—one thing I've been noticing that I really love in the book of Acts is it seems like no one is really, like, a thousand percent sure, like, how the Spirit works. And everyone's sort of just, like, figuring it out and feeling their way along. And I find that deeply encouraging uh, because—me too. Like, I— uh, when it comes to pneumatology or like the theology of the spirit, it's, it's sort of like um, this, this uh, place where we have to enter with a sense of humility and and mystery and, and being humble before the wonder that is God's spirit within us. Or as the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, he says that the great mystery of our faith is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wait, what, what do you mean Christ in me? like Christ saves me, Christ is with me, no, to Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so in some mysterious way, when I follow Jesus, like God is within me, like God lives inside of me, and um, it's not always formulaic. In fact, it's usually not formulaic, and I just, I find it so encouraging as the early followers of Jesus are figuring out life by the Spirit that they seem just as confused as I am, and, uh, and the Spirit continually surprises them. Today we're going to look at um, something surprising that happens, of course, in the book of Acts in chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 11. And uh, the Spirit moves in a way that we haven't seen the Spirit move yet. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen God's people through the power of the Spirit um, perform healings. We've seen the Spirit guide people to speak to different people or go to different towns. We've seen the Spirit of God uh, uh, embolden people, give them courage in the face of great um, opposition. And we, we, we've seen the Spirit also like inspire sermons and words and different kinds of, uh, of gifts of communication. And now in chapter 11, we see the Spirit do something a little different. I'm going to read the very end of chapter 11 of the book of Acts, starting in verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus, and he stood up and foretold that that by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So these guys come down from Jerusalem and, and to Antioch. And they are called prophets. This group of prophets comes down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And as they're meeting together, one of these people, one of these prophets foretells by the Spirit of God, it says, that there will be a great famine in the land. And so they all sort of band together to do what they can to support God's people in Judea. And this is interesting because um, it's not like... uh, like this idea of prophets uh, has been really prevalent so far in the Book of Acts, but also it doesn't seem like anyone is questioning it. Like, yeah, a group of prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, so of course we're going to see if they have any prophetic words from the Lord. This idea of being a prophet or having prophecy by the Holy Spirit was not um, surprising; was not unusual. It wasn't there; were, it wasn't outside of the categories that already existed. And it's, it's super important for us to to realize here because in the, in this story. Uh the, the prof- prophetic word is a, is a word of prediction. It's a word of foretelling, right? And that tends to be how we think of prophets, right? Like, like we think of a, a little bit like um, Harry Potter, like Professor Trelawney, like telling the future. Ooh, like, but um, actually prophets don't usually do that in the Bible, right? Uh, prophets in the Bible are, are people who have a, a skill. They're, they're skilled at hearing the word of God. And communicating it to the people around them, so they're skilled at like listening to what the spirit is whispering and saying, and to speak that in a way that's edifying for the whole body and so in this case, this word of knowledge happens to be a word of foretelling, but that's actually not often, what's the case? the, The prophets were people who went around saying, this is what God wants you to hear. This is what God really wants to tell you right now. And they're people who had spent time and been given the gifts by the Spirit to be able to be really sensitive to the voice of God and able to communicate it in a way that builds up the church. So these prophets come down from Jerusalem into Antioch, and one of them says that there will be a great famine, we ought to do something together about this. And I love this. Because whenever you, whenever you read a Bible passage, this is like, um, this is like uh, studying the Bible 101. I had a, a teacher in seminary, who used to say, two questions we always ask any Bible text. One, what is God doing? And two, what is God like? And um, that's just so helpful, that's so helpful. Like what, what is God doing? Well, he's, he's giving them forewarning of a coming disaster. What is God like? Well, he seems to be somebody who who wants to protect his children, like who wants to to provide for his people, who wants to give them an opportunity to provide for each other. And I I love that this happens in this way because it just like sort of warms my heart a little bit that like God is a God who wants to spare his people from harm. And that's important for me to remember because uh, I think... um, know, in, in a world that we live in where our culture is very pleasure-oriented, very, very pleasure-oriented, occasionally, not always, oftentimes the, the church can sort of kind of go along with that and just spiritualize, like pleasure is the most important thing, but let's spiritualize that. Some other times, though, the, the church can swing in the opposite direction and can sort of um, fetishize suffering. Like, if I'm spiritual, it means I suffer and I hurt. If, if God is really with me, it means that, like, things are going to be really hard. Or, like, if I'm facing challenges, that must be from God. Like, all the bad things that are happening to me must be because God made them happen. And in this passage, I'm reminded that of the many things that God is, one of them is compassionate. One of them is eager to spare his children from harm. In fact... This is like a tiny little story of God doing that, but the whole Bible, especially if you read the Old Testament, have you read the Old Testament? It's rare, but it's it's pretty cool. Uh, the Old Testament, like, moment after moment after moment, story after story of God rescuing his people, sparing them from trouble. In fact, there's a famous passage that perhaps if you were uh, involved in any sort of Christian uh, influence or spiritual community during the pandemic, you probably heard this passage quoted. This is Psalm 91. Just listen just like, I mean, if you want to follow along, you can, but just listen to this, these insane promises from God. Listen to this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Four, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because You have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. Now this is God speaking. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation that's insane like like those promises like the evil will not come near you no no evil will befall you you will walk on the snakes like The deadly pestilence will not come near your tent. God says, I will rescue you. And the first thing I'm aware of in this passage about this prophecy and this this famine and God giving people forewarning and foreknowledge of these things is that God desires to protect his children from harm. God wants to rescue them out of trouble. In fact, if you look at the, the, the Lord's Prayer, we know the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. At the end of that prayer, it says, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And there's a lot of debate about what the original text, what the original language means there. Um, and it's likely that, that it actually the word temptation, the word temptation in Greek is um, almost is the same word as the, the word like trial or like fierce testing in the spirit, right? So there's a lot of debate about, is this temptation like tempting to sin? Well, God doesn't tempt us to sin, so why would we pray that? But then there's a lot of, uh, especially um, in the last 100 years or so, there's a lot of scholars who suggest that this word temptation in the Lord's Prayer um, actually ought to be translated trials. So please don't lead us through trials. In fact, Dallas Willard, one of the greatest minds of of Christianity in the 20th and 21st century, in my humble opinion, uh, translates it this way. He translates the end of the Lord's Prayer. He says, please don't lead us through trials and deliver us from everything bad. And anybody you talk to, wherever they land on the translation of that passage, anybody you talk to will, will tell you that like Jesus is inviting us by teaching us the Lord's prayer to ask God to deliver us from trouble. And sometimes like as a Christian, when, when, I, when I've been in communities or in environments or just in a mindset that sort of glorifies suffering, I imagine that God actually wants me to go through difficulty and I forget that like it's okay to ask him to spare me. Like, God, help. Could, could you spare me from this difficulty? Could you spare me from difficulties I can't see? And I love that the people of God in Acts chapter 11 are asking God, what do we need to be warned of? Like, what do you need us to know so we don't just, like, die? So the movement doesn't end. The movement of Jesus doesn't end so that your, your children don't just like totally fall apart and are no longer seen on the face of the earth. Like what do you need us to know, God? And I think sometimes we forget that like we can ask God not only to spare us from trouble, but like what do you need us to know in order not to like put our foot in the trap? And, and I know people in my uh, life and in my general acquaintance who this is like a daily prayer for them. They ask God, like, God, these are my plans for the day, but what do you need me to know? Do you have any foreknowledge, any words for me today? Anything that is important for me to change my plans about? Whenever they take a family trip or plan any sort of like special event, they ask God, is this you? Is this from you? Is this something that you have for me? Or did I just sort of make this up on my own? And I think sometimes that we forget that we can ask God, God, lead me through danger, lead me through trouble, because the truth is we live in a world where famines happen. Like we live in a world where disaster does strike. Like if, if, you, if you have thought that like if I come to Jesus, uh, then, then I'm actually going to get to taste utopia on this earth. Um, and actually, like live in utopia on this earth. Uh, that God bless you. I'm so glad you're here. And that is actually a it's a heresy, um, because the Bible is super clear that that this world is not our home, that this is the world where disaster strikes where things happen, where, where, where like the disaster in Maui occurs. And I'm not being flippant about that or about any of the challenges we might face in our own lives, but we live in a world where there are dangers and difficulties and disasters at every turn. And we, as children of God, have the privilege to ask through the Spirit, how am I going to navigate through these, God? Would you help me? Would you give me foreknowledge? Would you show me how to like get through the things that I can't see coming tomorrow or later today? Would you help us, God? And it's great, I think, that God like responds with this really practical thing, right? Like, what a great moment to see God's provision for his people. And, and I'm also struck by the fact that, like, in this moment, God gives his people foreknowledge so that they can be prepared for disaster that's coming. But I'm also aware that that's not always how it goes down. Like, the very next chapter chapter 12, which I'm going to dip into a little bit here. Listen to this. In the beginning of chapter 12, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So, Herod, the king, kills James. James is the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. Almost all of them are going to be eventually, but he's the first. And then, um, Herod, we're not going to read this far, but Herod then also arrests Peter and puts him in jail. And we read in chapter 12, this beautiful, incredible story. You guys remember this one where Peter is in jail and um, all, all the people of God are praying for him at somebody's house. And Peter is like miraculously rescued from jail. It's it's like this the, the angel of God comes and like gets him out of jail. And then he goes to this house where they're praying and he knocks on the door and they're like, who is it? And he goes, it's Peter. And and the servant who hears that is so excited. She runs away to tell everybody back in the house and leaves Peter outside in the like locked out. And he's like, no, but I'm like here, can you let me in? And finally they come and they let him in and they realize like their prayers worked. Peter has been rescued. And that's, that's like the story of chapter 12. But I think what's often glossed over is that they were praying for Peter and Peter was rescued, but surely they were praying for James and James was killed. In fact, whose home are they gathering at for prayer it says that it's in verse 12 Mary the mother of John wait I thought James the brother of John was the one who was killed yeah so who's praying for Peter the mother of the man who just died her her son has died for the faith now they're afraid Peter's going to die for the faith but this time God intervenes and rescues Peter well, why, why wouldn't he rescue my son? Like, why, why wouldn't, we were praying for James, too. Like, why, why, why is James gone, and now Peter's rescued? Like, I thought, I thought this was the God who gives us foreknowledge of disaster, who, like, rescues us from harm. So what is going on with the fact that my son died, and Peter got out of jail? Like, if I'm, if I'm in that position, these are the questions I'm asking. And we're not necessarily told what her thinking is here or what the, the people around, the, around her are thinking, but, but the implication in the text is clear that um, God wants to spare his children from harm, and the great mystery of our lives and of the world and of God's goodness is that sometimes hard things occur, sometimes disaster strikes, and sometimes... Um, the thing I, I really want God to save me from is exactly what I experience. Just like sit with that for a second. Like that's not, ooh, that's not, that, that, that's like not something that'll preach very well, is it? Like that's not a good Sunday morning kind of, and now bless you for your week, right? Because it, it, re, it really does remind us that we live in this really complicated and complex and, and, and difficult broken world. That, like, we don't always get to avoid disaster. That sometimes we do encounter suffering. And some of you in here, I know enough of your story to know that you're probably going, Don't I know it? Don't I know it? And it would be deeply unhelpful for me to stand up here and say, God wants to deliver you, God wants to make everything smooth. He wants to help you avoid every disaster. And you look back on your own life and you go, well, where was God then? And where was God then? And where was God then? Did I just not listen? Is it my fault? Was I being disobedient? Like I experienced or am experiencing suffering. So what about me, Ben? Because the truth is that, that, that nothing in our lives with Jesus, this is, I will, I mean, if you, know, if you know me, Simon's heard me talk about this, but many of you have heard me talk about this, I will die on this hill. Nothing in our lives with Jesus, or in our lives in general, is, is simple. It's all complicated, and it all must be approached with a sense of humility before the mystery that is God's goodness and God's providence, Okay, I'm going to bring up God's providence. What do I mean by providence? Can I do this? Is this okay? Great. I don't work here. It doesn't matter. Um, I. Sorry. I'll stop saying that. Uh, so uh, providence, if you don't know that, it's just a theological term for basically like the, the idea of um, how, much is it, it, how much and in what way is God involved in shaping the events of our lives. And if you look at the end of chapter 11, um, it looks like God is deeply involved in shaping, if not the events, at least our response to them, right? But if you look in chapter 12, you think, well, how much is God involved in shaping the events of our lives? Like, Like, did God cause James to be killed? while causing Peter to be rescued? Like, did God choose Peter over James? And this is not just a, like, interesting biblical question for us to, like, chew on of an evening. This is a very relevant question for our lives. Like, I, I, I don't know if you're like me at all, but I look around at some people's lives, and I'm like, they seem to not be experiencing any difficulty. They're having a char- they seem to have a charmed life. And here's me just trying to get through Tuesday. So, like, what, is God playing favorites? Is God choosing that person? Is God causing my painful events, but releasing them from any difficulty? Like, are they doing something that I don't, that I'm not doing? Am I being disobedient and they're being obedient? Is it a maturity issue? Do I just need to grow up a little bit? And so we can start to ask all these questions that tie us up in knots. And here's, I think, the here's the really important thing is that all those questions I just asked, when we start looking at the story of James and, and Peter or those similar situations in our lives or just like start really tying ourselves up in knots about God's providence, oh, how much is he involved and, and to what degree and in what way is he going to rescue me or change the circumstances or da 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 when we start doing that, we're actually no longer thinking about God, thinking about ourselves, right? How do I escape this or how do I experience this? Like, like we're thinking about the circumstances of our own lives and whether we approve of them or disapprove of them, and we end up getting so insulated, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Does God like me? Does God not like me? Is there a good God? Because I don't feel like I am very taken care of in this moment. And it becomes all about what I'm experiencing and where I'm at and what I think and what I feel and how I'm experiencing the circumstances of my life and God's response to them. But notice, when the brothers hear from the prophets that the, this thing is going to happen, this famine is going to happen, they don't just sit there and go, oh, you know what we should do, everybody? We should pray that God stops the famine. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they prayed for relief, but, but you know what they did? They, they, so the disciples determined everyone according to their ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They, as I love this, everyone according to their own ability, which gives you the sense that some people did not have much to give. But everyone said, you know what? God has given us foreknowledge of this thing that's going to be really challenging. Let it inspire us to love. Let, us inspire, uh, let it inspire us to sacrifice on behalf of one another. See, when they got this word of knowledge, when they kind of experienced this moment, right, they could have gone really insular, right? They could have been like, well, that's crazy that's going to happen. Why don't you stop it, God? Why would you let bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? I want to know, God, if there's a good God in the world, why would you allow a famine to, your chil- to happen to your children, But instead, they don't do that. They don't get bogged down in these sort of fights that are really just about me, really just about what I think and what I want and what I experience. Instead, they go, oh, there's a need that God has made us aware of. How do we sacrificially love those people around us? Instead of going inside, we go outside. And see, this, this is what I was thinking of. This is, I've spent way too long getting to this question, but here's the question I thought of when I read this passage. And it was, what is the purpose of prophecy? Why would God give us prophecy like if God, if God is sometimes like going to deliver us from harm and other times we're going to experience real tragedy, like what, then what's the purpose of prophecy? Like what's the point? Why does God give people this gift and this skill of hearing his voice and expressing it to the people of God? What's the purpose of pros- prophecy? And as I thought about this, um, a really familiar passage came to mind that t- deals with a lot of the spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says this, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In verse 2, if I have the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am Nothing. Skimming down to the end of that chapter, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. What's the point of prophecy? What's the point of every spiritual gift? What's the point of everything we do in the way of Jesus? To have an easy life. Sorry, I misspoke. What I meant to say was to be right. Like theologically correct, yeah? What's the point of prophecy of every spiritual gift, of everything we do as followers of Jesus, it's love. Jesus said, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the great commandments. The Apostle Paul said, if I have every gift but have not love, I am nothing. And then he said the greatest of all these things, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. Jesus did not mince words. He was not unclear. His goal for his disciples was to be loving people toward God and toward one another. That's his plan for your life. To like sacrificially love people around you. And so when I experience these gifts of prophecy and of foretelling It has the possibility to either lead me to ask all these really like theological questions that are really just about me, or it has the ability to turn me outward in acts of love. Likewise, When the prophecy doesn't come and I do experience difficulty, challenge, when James does get put to death by the sword, when these things do occur, when challenges do arise, when disasters are lurking around the corner, when these things that I cannot predict threaten to overwhelm me, I have the choice. Will I turn inward and ask all of these theological questions that will just make roots of bitterness grow in my soul and and turn me ever more inward, ever more entitled, ever more demanding from life and the people around me, or will I look outward in acts of love, in choosing love? Jesus was really clear. Everything that we do in our walk with him is about becoming sacrificially loving people which is crazy because listen to this. That means whatever happens. No, I mean whatever happens. No, I mean whatever happens. We can still grow in giving and receiving love. So, so Paul says in Romans that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. All things. So the first implication is that all things happen to Christians like the full gambit of human experience in this world happens to Christians. The ups, the really high highs, and the really low lows. We get to experience it all. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. And then Paul is really gracious and and explains what that good is. And it's really clear in the following verse that the good that God has in mind for us is to become the same kind of sacrificially loving people as Jesus It's to turn us into Jesus people, like people who look and sound and act and live like Jesus. And and that is really good news. That is really good news because Jesus was the most free human being to ever live. Jesus is the one that the book of Hebrews describes as anointed with the oil of joy. Jesus is the one who experienced more painful circumstances, difficulties, misunderstandings, broken relationships than I probably will ever be able to squeeze into one lifetime and remained open, loving, able to embrace, to receive. He, he remained connected to his Father right through the suffering of the cross. He remained fully fulfilled in his relationship with the father right up to the very very end of his earthly ministry he not only gave love but he received love was filled with love he, he seemed to be a man that though the crazy circumstances of life seemed to just continually be piled onto him he seemed to be a man who was flourishing who was who was uh, almost like it? It seemed like he was living in a in a different plane of existence, like deeply rooted in this one, but not totally defined by what was happening around him. He seemed to be like like a like a flower blossoming in the desert. Like how is this happening? Like how does this work? That like this Edenic like Eden flourishing can occur in the midst of the worst of the worst circumstances. And I think it's because he knew that whatever happens, whether it's deliverance from harm through prophecy, or whether it's all the harm in the world being put on his own shoulders. Whatever happens, whatever happens, he doesn't have to turn inward and cut himself off from God and others, but he can continue to be a loving presence in the world. This is what he's made to do, and it's what we're made to do. So I think as I look at this passage, I'm just aware that the, the spiritual gifts for me um, can, can, can so quickly become like little life hacks. Like, my life will be better if I da-da-da-da-da right? So, like, even my spiritual practices, not even just my, like, gifts of the Spirit. I'm talking about, like, going to Tuesday morning prayer. Like, that's something I can do to, like, not have all these other issues. Or, like, my morning prayer time, like, that's something I can do to, to, like, to, like, have a better life and not fall into all these difficult circumstances. I can sort of find myself, without even meaning to, without even, like, really recognizing what I'm doing, I can start basically bargaining with God, (laughs) Like, I'm going to be a really good Christian so that bad stuff doesn't happen. Instead of remembering that God's primary goal for me is to turn me into Christ, to make me look like Jesus, who, who, like, is exactly who I want to be. Like, deeply okay, deeply fulfilled, deeply full of joy, deeply connected to God, whatever life throws at him. Like, not waking up in the morning anxious about what's coming in the day, but also not like living each day for his own pleasure. Like he's, he's a person who's free from all of that. He's just free from all of that. And if I have that mindset, then my Tuesday morning prayer is still important. But it's important because it helps me become more loving to God and others. It helps me open and turn outward. And morning worship on Sundays is really still important. But not so that my life goes more smoothly. But so that I become a more loving, resilient, and open person in my life. My my practices of prophecy and tongues and any other gift of the spirit becomes less about like me adding things to my life and me having all these like life hacks that're going to make everything better and instead turning me into a Jesus type person who can live freely and lightly in this world. And and so the spiritual practices, the gifts of the spirit are still valuable and still important, but they have a different purpose in my life now. In fact, they have, they have a purpose in my life now where, where um, I, know, I know that God is leading me toward his good ends, that he is giving me enough love to be able to share with those around me, and I don't have to be so self-preserving all the time. You notice this? Like, I can get so bogged down and so overwhelmed by just, like, trying to preserve myself. Like, am I going to be okay? Well, I better do this and this and this to make sure I'm okay. And I better do this and this and this to make sure that I have enough. And I better do this and this and this. And those things are fine. I'm not, like, you know, trying to say that your boundaries are bad ideas. I'm just trying to get us to reimagine what God might be desiring to do in each one of us through our spiritual practices Through our gifts of the Spirit. Because the truth is this we live in a really complicated world where bad things do happen and good things do happen. We live in a really complicated world. And we live in that complicated world led by the Spirit, who, as the Apostle Paul says, pours God's love into our hearts. We live in this really complicated world where bad things do happen, but they don't have to define us. Why? Because the Spirit is guiding us through them. So when I look back at, I'll end with this, I'm kind of rambling now. In Thanks, Simon. In uh, Psalm 91, those crazy promises of God I sort of took, as I sort of processed through this, I went back to Psalm 91 and I was like, huh. So if, if this psalm uh, is promising that everything will always go right, then it's pretty easy. It, like if the circumstance, if this psalm is saying the circumstances of my life will always be positive, then um, it's pretty easy to suddenly like blow holes in Christianity. But what if, what if, what if God's providence, okay, what if God's providence in our lives? doesn't only have to do with the circumstances of our lives. What if it also has to do with how those circumstances affect us, with like whether or not they own us, right? Dallas Willard, who I mentioned earlier, said that Jesus promised that for his disciples, those who follow him will never taste death. And people look at that, and they're like, well, lots of followers of Jesus have died, so must not be true. And Dallas Willard says, no, 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 no. of course, lots of followers of Jesus have died, but they didn't taste death. For them, they tasted glory. They went through the doorway into the fullness of God, And so I wonder if if there's something similar going on in Psalm 91. Like like when it says these crazy, crazy statements like because he holds fast to my name, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and I will rescue him and honor him. I wonder if that has um, some to do with the circumstances. Like, let's be clear, God does want to spare us from harm, but I wonder if it also has to do with like rescuing our souls from being utterly crushed and destroyed under the weight of life's difficulty. Like, I wonder if it has to do with releasing us from the need to have everything go perfect In order to be okay, like I can be okay even when the famine comes. Even when difficulty is just around the corner, I can be okay. And when it says that that no evil will come near us, I wonder if, if what that means is not that like bad things won't happen or hard things won't happen, but that Jesus is saying, I will protect you from what evil really wants to do, which is get a hold of your soul and turn it bitter and make you entitled and make you just slowly, slowly tear away from Jesus until you're lost in your own wilderness of darkness. That's evil's real plan for you, and Even when the difficulties come, I will protect you from that. So, I I wonder if the spiritual gifts are, yes, about like changing real practical circumstances in the world and also about freeing us. Freeing us in the midst of this really complex and honestly really difficult world. A really um, wise man. At the early 20th century, a guy named Gurjev. He uh, studied human beings a lot, and he um, he he was really interested in how human beings like grow and are shaped and 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 uh, sort of become mature over time. He said this really interesting statement. He said every, he said life is so hard, and I love I love this is like his whole this is where he begins all of his like his psychological teaching. He says life is so hard that everyone you meet is crawling through on their hands and knees. Oof. Life is so hard that everyone you meet is crawling through on their hands and knees. When I first heard that, I found it deeply affirming. I was like, oh, I'm not the only one. (laughs) And I started meditating on that that, that thought, and I was like, you know, um, Gurdjieff didn't know Jesus. He didn't have the Spirit of God within him. Hmm. I wonder if the Spirit of God is not trying to change that understanding to life is really great, life is really easy, Nothing bad will happen to you now. But I wonder if the Spirit of God wants to change that idea and say, no, life is so hard that everyone you ever meet is crawling through on their hands and knees, but when they experience the life of God welling up within them, they're able to stand. They're able to walk through the difficulties of life. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear the evil that's coming our way. I wonder if the, the like second half of, of, of what Gurdjieff didn't know is that like through the power of God, life may not always get easier, circumstances may not always go right, but we can stand, we can walk, we can worship, we can rejoice, we can give and receive love because we are free, we are redeemed, we are held, we are secure. The Spirit, as the Scripture says, is the seal The seal, the first fruits of what is to come. And by the Spirit, we are confident that all will be well. So we don't have to crawl through life on our hands and knees. We can stand tall. We can hold our head up as children of the King and walk through whatever life throws our way without allowing it to destroy us. That, I think, is the promise of the Spirit. I think it's the promise of the spiritual gifts. And I think. um, This is my last time getting to talk about the Spirit in this series, and so I think that's what I want to leave us with is, like, the the spiritual gifts are are here for our resilience, are here to guide us through whatever life may throw our way. Uh, Can the worship team come on up? So we're going to take communion here in a moment. We're going to take communion here in a moment. And um, I feel like uh, every time... Uh, I preach anywhere or any any devotional or whatever, um, what I basically end up saying in in different words based on different passages is, oh yeah, it's really like all about receiving from God. Like as a whole life, a whole spiritual life is about receiving from God. I think that is true. I think that is true. I think the Spirit wants to give us these gifts of resilience and a deep sense of a wholeness and a okayness in the midst of life's difficulties and complexities. I think the Spirit wants to give us love so that we can give love. I think the spiritual gifts are here to impart God's goodness to us and to one another. And um, what a great time to practice receiving from God as we approach the tables for communion. So um, if you need a gluten-free option, there's one on this side, but there's also regular on both sides. But what we do is we take the bread. This is something Jesus taught us to do. He said that, that this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And this, this juice, this, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for the sins of the world. And do this in remembrance of me. And I love this because um, when Jesus institutes this, uh, this ritual, this um, sacrament, if you will, or institute... Some depends on your church tradition, what you call it. Uh, when, when he institutes this thing, um, the disciples haven't baked the bread. The disciples um, haven't really even, like, done anything to, to like, earn this from Jesus. Um, they, they're just sitting around a table. They don't even ask for it. They don't even ask for the bread. They're just sitting around a table. And Jesus takes it, and he says, this is broken for you. Take it and receive it. Take it and eat it. And he says, this, this cup is spilled for the sins of the world. This is my blood shed for the sins of the world. Will you take it and will you drink it? Will you receive it? Take it into yourself. It's this radical act of generosity. And when we come to the tables for communion and we take the bread and we dip it in the juice and we, we, we eat it, we take it, right? When we do that, um, it's this moment of deep poverty. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to bring. I, d- I didn't do anything for this. All I can do is receive what has been freely given to me. And I think that's all we can do when it comes to the Spirit of God, too. Receive the gifts that are freely given. Receive the resilience, the ability to stand in life's difficulties. Receive it from Jesus. And as we approach the tables this morning, I would encourage you just to to, um, tell God (laughs) God (laughs) how, how much nothing you have to offer him this morning. Tell, tell God, like, like I, I don't have anything to offer in exchange for your forgiveness, for your redemption on the cross, but I receive it. I take it. And, and allow this moment of receiving to be one of great joy, like our loving Father. I love when Jesus says, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Like, he gives with joy. He gives with joy. So let's practice receiving this morning. Um... In a moment, I'll pray. The tables will be open after that. And um, as you're ready, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't worry about sitting in your seat. That's fine. No one will look at you weird. But if you are a follower of Jesus, as you're ready, you can get up and come receive from our King. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your blood and your body, which has been shed and broken for us. I'm poor and needy, Lord. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to offer. Thank you for giving so richly and so freely, even though, um, even though it costs you a lot. Thank you. Lord, would you impart to us the joy of your salvation this morning? Would you, would you give us your spirit to fill our hearts with your love, that we can face this really complicated and up-and-down world with great resilience, with great hope, and being free, free, Lord, from bitterness and demands and expectations we receive from you this morning, and we love you. In your name, amen.